1348, and Europe is dying. In just four years in the mid-1300s, as much as 50% of Europe's population died of bubonic plague. Between now and the next presidential election, imagine half of everyone you know dying. If you're sitting in a room with your significant other or parent or child, friend, neighbor, coworker, they're dead. Picture the social devastation, the breakdown in civil society, the disruption of any reliable infrastructure and simple rhythms of life. This was the Black Death. And though this apocalyptic pandemic took place nearly three centuries before the main focus of our story, the Thirty Years' War, it is the necessary backdrop for the general crisis of the 17th century. The Black Death was a plague that took the lives of as many as 200 million people in Eurasia, but it was also a fatal infection in the very structure of feudal society. And as the body of feudalism slowly began to die and decay, a new order was struggling to be born out of it. The Black Death left the existing structures of political, economic, and religious authority in Europe intact, but fundamentally eroded their ability to sustain themselves in the new environment created by the plague itself. Cycles of disease unleashed by the plague would continue into the early modern era. Climactic conditions would deteriorate, undermining the agricultural basis of the economy. Above all, the classes that had been forged by the medieval period, nobles and burghers and peasants, would all struggle for control of the rapidly shifting conditions of life. This struggle would see the rise of a number of powerful dynasties that knit together large domains through conquest and strategic marriage. The conflict between these continental powers built state capacity that would have been inconceivable before the Black Death. Eventually, this process would culminate in one particular dynastic ruler bringing Europe to fear and trembling at the prospect of submission to a single ruler, a universal monarch. And through all this death, new instruments of state-building and finance will slowly emerge from the destruction. Institutions that will serve as the infant origins for state capitalism centuries on. The German banking family, the Fuggers, appear here, and through their financing of the dynastic wars of this era, will allow its members to become some of the richest men the world has ever seen, personally accumulating nearly 2% of Europe's entire GDP. It's not long after the Black Death that the first recorded mention of the Fugger family appears. A terse record, with the original Germanic spelling of their name, of the family patriarch resettling in Augsburg. It reads simply, in what could be the title of this entire series, Fucker Has Arrived. So feudalism, I guess it would be best to start with a working definition of the system we're going to kill. Uh, To try to be as broad and simple as possible, feudalism structured society around contractual relationships based on land holding. Land was granted by a hereditary aristocracy in exchange for obligations of military service or returns of food and goods. Subdividing down to a local manor lord who controlled the actual lands worked by the peasants. Peasants were bound to the land and worked on it in exchange for protection by their local lords. All of society was bound by this system of obligations, allowing a relatively small group of nobles to accumulate vast wealth off the exploitation of primitive cultivation employed by the peasants. I mean, I feel like just through pop culture, we've all got a working understanding of feudalism. But what's actually important here? 
the peasants were fucked, uh, constantly burdened by heavy tithes and taxes put on them. And the system of land distribution and military obligation bound the aristocracy together. I, I think it's partly difficult to convey this because it is an alien system to us. The, the free market system that is so deeply ingrained in us that it's difficult to conceive of a system that's not based off of profit and surplus value. What do you think, man? Well, the most vital fact of feudalism is that it is a collection of hierarchically arranged bilateral contractual relationships based on land tenure, uh, and mostly the recognition of uh, the states on the ground. Whoever has the power in a given area, sort of by definition, has been uh, given consent to govern it. Right. Uh, and feudalism is just an arrangement of hierarchical concessions to reality that are all facilitated by an upward flow of tribute mm-hmm. uh, and a downward flow of uh, of military protection. Right. Uh, and it is labor exchange for security up and down this chain of social power. Right. Classic feudalism, as we imagined, it was already in a deep crisis when the Black Death hit. The archetypal feudal subject was the serf, bound to the land and bound to provide some percentage of a surplus agricultural product to a lord who promised military protection. Serfdom arose after the collapse of the Roman slave economy as a way to manage a situation of cheap, abundant farmland with not enough people to farm it. Those military aristocratic families who possessed the ability to dominate the peasantry found compulsory servitude to be the only viable method of compelling the food production they depended on. Thanks in part to a prolonged era of higher temperatures known as the medieval warm period that began in the 10th century, which increased crop yields, Europe's population exploded in this time. By the eve of the Black Death, the situation of cheap land and expensive labor had been reversed. Land was increasingly expensive, and hands to till it were easy to come by. Feudal obligations were giving way to formal titles of land rent and cash payments for laborers. Slash and burn agricultural practices had also depleted the fertility of much of the continent's soil, leading people to cut down swaths of forest and attempt to scratch calories out of marginal lands that had never been cultivated before. The situation was ripe for the liquefaction of the rural economy and a move to cities, but at this same moment, Europe was suffering from a crippling shortage of the precious metals that served as the only stable medium of exchange and storehouse of value. Existing sources in Europe, exploitable by existing methods, were running out, and the end of the crusading project in the Mideast had extinguished any hope of gaining more by conquest in that direction. Without metal currency, it was impossible for anyone to convert agricultural surpluses into other forms of economic value. The combination of declining food production and rising population was socially combustible, but nowhere from the burgeoning cities to the rural peasant villages was there any class capable of challenging the power of the roughly 300 families who together claimed 60% of Europe's land and almost all of its political power. Mm -hmm. This stalemate was only broken by the arrival of 12 Black Sea trading vessels arriving at the port of Messina in Sicily, carrying an unknown and unspeakable cargo. The plague resolved the contradiction of too many mouths with too little land, but by increasing the leverage of the remaining peasants in their constant negotiation with the landowning class who required the surplus of their labor, a host of new contradictions were created. You mentioned crusading there for a second, and I, d- I just wanted to dive into that for a moment because there's a way to think of the Crusades as, yes, this religiously motivated uh, you know, fanatic movement, but it's also kind of the ur-colonization project of, of yeah. Europe. It's a project, like most of these projects are, of, of state formation, of, of, right. of uh, dynastic leaders attempting to utilize the war-making capacity that they did have, the power that they had to command armies— uh, to aggrandize themselves, they had basically fought themselves to a standstill in the grubby little wars over Europe. They had this con- this constant low level 
warfare between each other that had ground to a halt. There was nobody securing any uh, uh, real domination anywhere. Uh, and the hope of uh, the Middle East was that uh, a colonial and uh, a proto-colonial relationship could be established and new dominate new lands could be folded in because there's no incentive in feudalism for capital to be reinvested. Right. And so that means that when uh, a given sovereign uh, feels that they uh, are in an unstable relationship, they're, lo- they're declining revenues or whatever, uh, their only real recourse is to try to dominate and take over other territory. Uh, and the Crusades are really an extension of that outward is like the social forces, the power, the power projection of European states becomes great enough to get thousands of guys to march into the fucking Syrian desert. Yes. And if you look into the history of the Crusades, it, it really backs us up because they very immediately become not about what they're supposed to be and like which one is the one where they like start going to the the holy land and then just get distracted immediately and just raid constantinople yeah the fourth the fourth crusade is 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 one of the most uh absolutely uh uh, petty cynical it's got to be one of the less like blackly comic instance in world history it's amazing there hasn't been a movie made about verhoeven could make an amazing movie about the fourth crusade so a bunch of crusaders go to venice and they basically promise loot Mm-hmm. To the Doge, Doge Dandalo mm-hmm. of uh, of Venice and the Venetian Republic, that if they would build them a a, a navy because they just got there without ships because mm-hmm. they were a bunch of horse lord dumbasses <laughs> from from France and whatnot, and they uh, basically promised them booty when getting to Byzantine Byzantium, uh, and uh, eventually they owed the Venetians so much that the only way that they could pay them off ended up being to lay siege to and then uh break into constantinople the capital of eastern christianity yes uh, whose call for help had signaled the first crusade right uh and stripped it of valuables and overthrew its emperor and replaced him with a, a latin uh emperor uh and then they all just some of them strangled straddled forward but that was basically we, it the, yes yeah and then i think yeah you, you also mentioned that uh, you know coincidentally or interestingly the the last true call for a crusade happens like basically the moment the new world moment before the new world is discovered yes and then you get this new thing and you're like well we don't really need to do that anymore you yeah know? this it, new space place to develop an expansionary state project in the very early days uh, in the in the days around before and after the reformation there is this abortive uh, papal attempt to get a one last crusade against the turks now now yes. that they've been kicked out of the holy land and it's actually Spain that uh, kind of undermines it, which is one of the things that led a lot of the French, a lot of the French clergy, like uh, c- the Catholic clergy, to, to decide that, oh, France is the only real guarantor of Catholicism because Spain won't do this because uh, they're, they're pursuing their own petty interest. But th- that failed to go here, and instead you get the Reformation and the violence associated with that, and of course, the finding of the new world, a new place to express that. Uh, that need that uh, need to feed the the machine of war that uh, defines the relations in Europe. The old feudal order had resisted the centralized consolidation of power. Yes, there were kings and the heads of those three hundred families at the top of the system, but their rule was fractured, contested. Uh, realms constantly being split and reformed and subdivided and conquered. The state capacity necessary to sustain a permanent expansionary project just had not developed. 
this is immediately obvious if you look at any map of political divisions before, say, the 15th century. Little archipelagos of lands and domains stretching over vast territories, broken up by other duchies, ecclesiastical holdings, lands held by foreign rulers in different countries, and innumerable smaller lands held by other titles. We'll get into this more when we focus on the insane mess of the Holy Roman Empire, but anyone who's played Crusader Kings or Europa Universalis knows what I'm talking about. So we have this feudal system that had kind of reached an organizational maximum, but then the cold scythe of Black Death comes along and just eradicates fully half of the people in it. And in the aftermath of that horror, suddenly there's some space to move. And Jesus Christ did people start moving. Up to 25% of rural settlements were completely abandoned, with the survivors fleeing to nearby cities. These newcomers bumped up against the existing urban guilds and political authorities. The century or so after the Black Death saw spasms of violent conflict running up and down the social scale. In the countryside, peasants were able to negotiate with their lords for better pay, fewer feudal labor obligations, or if they were tenants on the lord's land, a less burdensome rent. The nobility responded by using their political power to enforce higher taxes on farmers, increased feudal cash obligations, and to enclose the common land that provided a material base for peasant resistance to noble exploitation. The result was an increase in class conflict that would break into cyclical patterns of open violence. Between 1350 and 1500, major peasant revolts had twice rocked France, thrice rocked England, Spain, Denmark, Norway, Transylvania, and the Holy Roman Empire all saw rebellions as well. These armed uprisings were crushed by the combined might of the royal dynasties and the nobility, but such emergencies were generally the only domestic political activity that saw the kings and aristocrats on the same side. Kings sought to consolidate power while the high aristocratic families struggled to maintain absolute authority within their fiefdoms. In Western Europe, the constant military conflict between dynasties had the effect of pulling power towards the center as the business of warfare suppressed internal class conflict and incentivized kings and their vassals to cooperate in the creation of effective regimes of taxation and military mobilization. This process concentrated authority in kings who monopolized the mechanisms for waging war. In Spain, the Reconquesta, the long struggle to retake the Iberian Peninsula from Muslim rule, completed in 1492, produced a powerful Spanish monarchy ruled by the Trastamara family. The Trastamara family. Trastamara. The same dynamic applied in France, where Valois power was affirmed by the successful completion of the hundred-year-long campaign to drive the English back across the channel. Now, for England, defeat of the dynastic project in France led to a collapse of Plantagenet family legitimacy under the ineffectual King Henry VI and a brutal civil war pitting the branches of the ruling families against each other over control of the burgeoning state. This war between York and Lancaster, later dubbed in by Victorian literature the War of the Roses, destroyed the lineages of the great houses of England, allowing the exiled Welsh lord Henry Tudor to claim the throne and impose a strong dynastic state on a decimated aristocracy. Mm, in- it sounds interesting. Somebody should maybe like write a like a fantasy series yeah, about that. Of- like, wonder if you just yeah. like threw some dragons into that. Perhaps magic of some kind. Yeah, a little bit of that. Yeah. Seems like it could be popular. Zombies? Now we're talking. If now if only there was like a legendary wall at the northern end of this kingdom. That would be helpful. Yeah. In German lands, however, the high aristocrats were so powerful as to resist participation in dynastic military projects, and the Holy Roman Emperor, who embodied the state, was unable to meaningfully direct it. By the early modern period, the empire was a disempowered medieval throwback surrounded by dynamic centralizing monarchies. So uh, 
we've got these dynasties in France and Spain that are gaining this territorial power and the ability to uh, project authority, as I said. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have suborned the church in its own way in, to their aims. You've got, as we said, this tradition of a Gallic Catholic church yes. that starts really with the uh, with the Avignon papacy uh, in the Middle Ages when the, the French king basically doesn't like the pope and creates his own pope that is seated in uh avignon we've got pope at home yeah <laughs> and they persist there for centuries it's a it's a longer than you think there it's are two lo- popes it's, it's for a long like ass time years. it's a long ass time and it establishes this this uh french prerogative and control over high ecclesiastical offices now in spain that uh, authority is expressed by their control over the inquisition mm-hmm. the spanish inquisition is not a papal a bureaucracy. It answered to and was established by the Catholic Church. When you look at or the the, the, the or I'm the sorry, Spanish by rulers. the Spanish uh, uh, Spanish monarchy. Uh, when you look at the when you look at the persecution campaigns of the Inquisition, yes, you're looking at religious fanaticism. But what you're really looking at is the assertion of uh, a, a increasingly centralized dynastic authority in the Ferdinand and Isabella regime uh, at the end of the Reconquest. It's almost, I mean, this might be a little reaching, but it's basically like a early modern state trying to grope towards, I don't know, a police force right. or something like that. You right. know, a, a, a domestic projection of power, of, of violence, of yes. force. Yes, right. But the thing is, is that they gain this. Like, you see them gaining power. You mm-hmm. see them gaining a capacity. But there is this devil's bargain that they have to s- strike with local power because the only way that they can project this exterior force is if they grant autonomy to local leaders Mm -hmm. because if you're fighting a war you at this low level of technological sophistication cannot make anybody really do anything right if the nobles don't want to send you taxes and they don't want to send you levies then you don't get them if especially if you've got a war to fight you're not going to be able to fight them too so you have to grant them control of local local authority over the lands in their area and then yeah they will send you tribute willingly they will send you arms and they will support you but it is at the cost of that assumption and that's okay for a while though the conflict is latent until the state gets strong enough that it in order to get stronger it must increase the efficiency of the system which and has to come at the expense of local control right and that creates a cycle of reaction that is going to power through all of these states as the tensions and violence uh, and instability of the era increase I mean, I'm going to say this over and over again in the series, not to put too fine a point on it, but ultimately that is what this whole story is, how to build a state. How to build a state. And how to every, build, and with it, capitalism. Yes. As a political economy, as a social reality, because yes. the two are necessary. The one is the vessel for the other. And so we'll see over and over all these little innovations, these new attempts, some failing, some succeeding, to try to put together everything that we understand in the 21st century of what a country is a state yes it's through this period that we see the rise and consolidation of one of the great houses of europe the line that will be the focus of the next part of our series some of the greatest to ever do it one of the most prominent families in european history with the jaws to match give it up for the Habsburg dynasty. Starting from a line of minor counts in Switzerland, the Habsburgs, through marriage and strategic alliances, slowly expanded their domains over centuries to the east. 
gaining dynastic control of Austria in the 13th century and south towards Italy in the 14th. Throughout their rise, the Habsburgs gained from conquest and domination as well as strategic marriage and inheritance, but also from the sheer luck of outlasting their competition, placing heirs in lines of succession that they could have easily been passed over in until everyone else fortunately died before them, leaving the Habsburg heirs holding the bag. It's kind of like a game of musical thrones, but instead of waiting for the music to stop, you're just waiting for all your uncles to die. Mm -hmm. So the line split for a time in the 1300s and 1400s, but in 1452, Frederick III gains the Pope's favor and was crowned Holy Roman Emperor, beginning a centuries-long Habsburg domination of that position. In 1477, Frederick's son Maximilian was married to the Duke of Burgundy's daughter, giving Habsburg's control of the Low Countries, the uh, Netherlands and Flanders. Maximilian's son, Philip, was married to Joanna of Castile in 1497, giving Habsburg control of Spain with effective control of Naples and southern Italy. And Maximilian was proclaimed Holy Roman Emperor in 1508. Again, if you're a Crusader Kings fan, this is just an insane run of impressive dynastic consolidation. So dynasties are the forerunners of the modern state. These self-contained, immortal political units with their own mythic origin stories, their own values and collective interests and cultures and means of pursuing goals. The Habsburgs had their own storied family history, complete with ancient documents that showed them to be the direct descendants of the Caesars of Rome. In truth, the family had risen to prominence from minor noble origins thanks to their control of Alpine toll roads. Dynastic wealth was not based on economic productivity, but by ability to extract rent through the monopolization of violence. Thanks to that money, the Habsburgs could afford the cost of having those documents forged and eventually adopt as a symbol the letters A-E-I-O-U, which had several meanings, the most important of which was, in Latin, Austria is destined to rule the world. Another saying of the era was more accurate. Let others fight. You, happy Austria, marry. <laughs> Nothing that the Habsburg family did mattered more to their eventual rise to European preeminence than their robust fertility. When the first Habsburg bought his way onto the throne of the Holy Roman Empire, he solidified Habsburg influence by securing marriages to every secular electoral family. This process of consolidation was eventually embodied in the person of Emperor Maximilian. His marriage to the daughter of the Duke of Burgundy and the subsequent marriages of his children to the Trastamara family of Spain gave Maximilian the chance to affirm the grandeur of his name for all of Europe. Unfortunately, the system that allowed a single man to amass such a massive amount of territorial power didn't select for ability, intelligence, or vision, just familial lineage. The churn of noble DNA had thrown up to the position of ruler of Austria, the Low Countries, and Holy Roman Emperor, a himbo. <laughs> Maximilian tried with all his might to fulfill the potential of his titles, but his military campaigns against the French in Italy and Provence failed, leaving him deeply in debt and forced to make concessions to the princes of the empire. Near the end of his life, he made peace with his own failures and said, resting his hopes for ultimate Habsburg ascendancy on the narrow shoulders of his grandson. Charles of Habsburg was born in Ghent in modern-day Belgium in February of the year 1500. We just ran through some of the Habsburg dynastic bullshit earlier, but from the perspective of Charles, let's look at it one more time. His paternal grandparents were Maximilian I, Holy Roman Emperor, and Mary of Burgundy, through whom the Habsburgs had gained control of the Low Countries. His maternal grandparents were Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile, you know, the folks who unified the Spanish crown, funded Columbus, and began the transatlantic Spanish empire. Charles was the son of their daughter, Joanna, and Philip, 
and as such became the Archduke of Austria, the King of Aragon and Castile, and the Duke of Burgundy by birthright. So in Charles, we have the one Habsburg who now unifies all these realms, from Hungary to Portugal. Oh, and also, yeah, Naples is in there. I keep forgetting that uh, Naples and Sicily are their own little kingdom. Tucker down there, just like, hey, we're around too. We also see in his accumulation of these realms the same combination of strategy and luck that Habsburgs have been riding for a few centuries. He was the child of Joanna, Queen of Aragon and Castile, but she was only the third child of Ferdinand and Isabella. Luckily for Chuck, Joanna's older brother and sister both conveniently kicked the bucket in 1498. And with the death of Philip, Joanna conveniently went mad. Uh, she probably had some kind of mental breakdown, but was also uh, pushed out of her position and locked away in the Palace of Tordesillas for almost 50 years. Similarly, with the Holy Roman Empire, Charles was able to leverage his German origin through the Low Countries in Austria, along with separate machinations from Pope Leo, to play France and Habsburgs off each other to secure an uncertain election to the emperor and become Charles V. For his election, we can thank Grandpappy Max, who borrowed huge sums of money from the aforementioned Fugger family of merchant bankers to persuade the electors to choose Charles over King Francis I of France and King Henry VIII of England to be the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. I know that this Woo! this is the the tough part of like listing it's this going stuff. Up, you, it's going up the top of the the, the roller coaster. Yeah, I know. Like, but you got to set this stuff up to you just gotta. get into like how insanely complicated this is and how unlikely it is to invest all this power into a singular person. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bad system. Shouldn't do it. So why go through all this Baroque genealogy and family history and titles and possessions of whatever? Doesn't this all just lead to another bejeweled Burgundian king who can barely close his mouth? Well, we're looking at the process of consolidation that leads out of feudal dislocation and towards a modern centralized state. And in his lifetime, Charles was surfing the forward crest of that wave. Now, threaded throughout Renaissance thought is the dream of a universal monarchy, of a single ruler who could quell the ceaseless and bloody dynastic conflict that defined European politics and bring about an era of peace and Christian fellowship. Thanks to Charles's position at the apex of dynastic power, those around him were quick to see in his person the fulfillment of that vision. His Italian tutor wrote to him as a child that, God the Creator has given you this grace of raising you in dignity above all Christian kings and princes by constituting you the greatest emperor and king who has been since Charlemagne, your predecessor. Charles acknowledged these ambitions by choosing as his personal motto, plus ultra. Plus ultra. Meaning ever further. But he was always ambivalent about the actual prospect of universal monarchy. While his opponents, like the Pope and the King of France, often saw him as a continental menace, Charles' own vision of power was more circumspect. A significant reason for this was his status as Holy Roman Emperor and his fraught relationship with the imperial princes who were quick to resist any moves that looked like they were designed to advance Habsburg power at the expense of their own. So the political goals of the Habsburgs are linked with the political nature of the Holy Roman Empire, which brings us to one of the main engines of tragic historical comedy of this whole series, the hilariously absurd nature of the Holy Roman Empire, one of history's great political jokes uh it's a it's a hell of a jalopy that's for sure <laughs> it's amazing they got so many miles out of it uh you know you're uh you're slapping the top of the holy roman empire going you'll be amazed how many duchies you can fit in this thing <laughs> the whole entity was first established as a theoretical political continuation of the roman empire by charlemagne as a frankish empire explicitly set as the protector of the papacy and defender of christendom within a generation though <laughs> 
It's really funny that Charlemagne Empire lasts like what four years or something. I mean, it was all just proving a fact that nobody at the time could know, but that was eventually ratified by the very existence of the Holy Roman Empire is that that swath of land was ungovernable from a center. Yes. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking in this series about the specific political sclerotic nature of the Holy Roman Empire. But, you know, here is Charlemagne forging this huge territory that is basically modern France and Germany put together. And then it breaks in two. Uh, why would you say France ends up like France and Germany ends up the stupid Holy Roman Empire? To me, it boils down to geography, essentially. Mm-hmm. Is that is that uh, the the geographic the he- they call France the hexagon because mm-hmm. it is this hexagonal shape which, which has uh, natural borders basically everywhere from the Alps to the Pyrenees and then the, the coasts. Yes, uh, it really it's the oh, it's the liminal spaces, the low countries, and of course that becomes this huge zone of contention and conflict and everything. Right, and it's unsecured, and it's it, it, that's why you get the fucking uh, eighty years war. But you have this relatively coherent thing. Uh, that builds itself into a dynamic dynastic regime through this conflict over its territory with the uh, English uh, dynasty uh, in the Hundred Years' War and eventually dominates this area. And and then in the process of dominating that area, dominates it through this machine it had built to win that war. Uh, But to the West, uh, the German lands are just this big valley. It's it's a series of river valleys Mm -hmm. There is no natural boundary to anything. And so conflicts sort of bleeds to a local level. Uh, it doesn't bring power into concentration to compete at higher levels of social complexity and population size. So you just get p- petty smaller groups with a weaker imperial authority at the center. Yeah, and the imperial authority that just is this vestige of author- an authority that once was that yeah. has no practical right. relationship to anything going on then. And but, like we were just talking about before we started recording what the technical difference between like a land grave and yes. a margrave yes. is. I don't know if we've talked about this. I don't think we, we have not on the, on the show. So a land grave is, is essentially a count. He's, mm. he's a feudally recognized Lord over a parcel of land. He's got legal rights there. He's got cust feudatory rights. Uh, and then the margrave uh, is a marcher Lord as in a military commander of a border area. One of the emperor's police officers, basically of these little zones, because you need those because these are literally disputed areas. Uh, and over time, those just calcified into these hereditary dyna- yes. dynasties that drew feudal uh, uh, rents, basically, and then waged war uh, and waged politics and did the Reformation uh, in the pursuit of, of those interests. But you got to remember, though, when you say that France is this dynamic, centralizing authority, that is only in comparison to Germany. It's still uh, a nightmare. It of is still a, petty, a, a nightmare yeah, yeah, yeah. of regional uh, powers. Uh, and local uh, uh, semi-autarkic noble clans, basically, similar to Spain in that respect. Uh, but it is just a vastly more coherent state uh, capable of uh, more coordinated power projection than anything that emerges in Germany. So within a generation of Charlemagne, this great legendary king uniting all this stuff, it was split apart and then later reunited many times over. The uh, geographic center of the empire moved east as the Frankish lands to the west became the kingdom of France. The emperor's extremely weak authority had spiraled over the next several centuries, resulting in the pool of smaller authorities fragmenting the empire. 
to begin, and this is from C.V. Wedgwood here, who is a major source for this series. Uh, her 30 Years War book is, is basically the Bible. So I want to shout her out now because we'll be borrowing liberally from her work throughout this. Quote, foreign rulers held fiefs within the empire. The king of Denmark was the Duke of Holstein and the great and scattered estates, which made up the whole section of the empire known as the Burgundian Circle, were virtually independent under the king of Spain. Direct vassals of the emperor, such as the elector of Brandenburg, held lands outside the empire and independent of imperial authority. The system had long ceased to conform to any known definition of a state. Primogeniture was not established until much later in the HRE, so lands were divided and subdivided among noble offspring. Uh, we talked about this in the last episode. Whereas in Western Europe, where uh, noble second and third sons had to settle for positions in the church or the royal bureaucracy, in the empire, they could inherit, leading to a de-evolutionary cycle of lands being broken up until small principalities could be broken down to little more than a village in a noble's hunting lodge. Then there were the free imperial cities, which could range in size from a province like Nuremberg to little more than an orchard with a wall around it. Then there were lands claimed by knights or wealthy merchants who pledged loyalty only to the emperor. On top of that were the ecclesiastical lands, a, a whole constellation of abbeys, monasteries, and prince bishoprics owing loyalty to the Catholic Church, which again could scale to the size of small provinces or smears of tiny estates separated by hundreds of miles of distance. Thus, again from Wedgwood, a population of 21 million depended for its government on more than 2,000 separate authorities. Even if you take the broadest base of confederations of the knights, imperial cities, and other tenants of the emperor, there are at least 300 conflicting authorities in Germany. So, the at least semi-ironic proclamation that the emperor was the, quote, king of kings. Yes, he wore the crown, but what did he rule? The Holy Roman Empire was defined by the inability to centralize institutions of authority, to cohere and assert power. The geographic and geopolitical conditions that animated politics west of the Alps were lacking. The German lands were a huge basin defined by river systems, unbound in the way of Iberia or the Frankish Hexagon or the British Isles. The high nobles of the empire had been first invested with power by Charlemagne and with the collapse of the Carolingian dynasty that followed him, were able to guard their princely authority from any attempts by subsequent powers to claw it back. The Middle Ages saw a repeated cycle of noble unrest and in each case, the path of least resistance for the emperor was to make peace by offering concessions, recognizing princely rights that in other lands would have been monopolized by the monarch. These concessions were always put on paper, meaning that Germany boasted the most developed constitutional structure and body of legal theory of any European polity. Literacy at this point was a technology of elite power projection and negotiation. Princes of the empire had the right to administer justice, collect taxes, even mint currency on their own lands. By the 13th century, the most powerful of these princes, the descendants of the imperial court office holders, had secured the right to elect their emperor. The three ecclesiastical emperors were the Archbishop of Maine, Cologne, and Trier. The secular ones were the Count Palatine of the West, the Duke of Saxony in the East, and the Margrave of Brandenburg in the North. It's funny that even within this electoral thing, it's three different titles of people. It's like... A prince and a margrave. We got a duke. We got a margrave. We got a count. Yeah. A count, a margrave, and a duke walk, walk into, into a, a bar. bar yeah. A, a count, a duke, and a, a margrave walk into the airfoot latrine. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> later, the Duke of Bohemia was added to, to complete the seven. The authority of these seven electors to choose the emperor was codified, along with all the other rights and privileges of the German mobil 
of the German nobility, the Golden Bull of 1356. Again, great name for a document. While this structure left the emperor weak, it also allowed the aristocracy, as prone to feuding amongst each other over land and power as anywhere else, uh, more likely to pursue their conflicts through the various imperial courts and parliaments than through open violence. The emperor's most vital function was to serve as the impartial arbiter of these sort of disputes. It's also funny that at imperial elections, it was uh, customary for the newly elected emperor to read out loud this entire centuries-in-the-making collection of rules, privileges, and codified hierarchies, which could apparently take hours. Uh, Certainly a snooze fest for all involved, but uh, I can imagine it as one little humiliation to prove who the emperor really worked for. Yeah, you just got to make him shake it a little bit. Yeah, they should. Uh, the president should have to read the Constitution at the. Uh, Absolutely, at the, um, he should have to do it while clapping cheeks. <laughs> Emperor Maximilian made his play for greater leverage over the estates of the empire, but ended up deeply in debt to German bankers and forced to make further concessions to the estates instead. While other European dynasties were consolidating power through central administration, the empire established a system of independent administrative circles called creases. The imperial parliament was rechristened the Reichstag. Competing imperial and regional court systems were introduced, all of this leaving Charles V to inherit a composite empire which contained in Spain one of the most powerfully centralized dynastic states and in the Holy Roman Empire something that couldn't be called a state at all. So then by 1519, we've got the setup for this fascinating conflict. Charles V was now at the top of one of the largest, most powerful dynastic political entities Europe had seen since Charlemagne 700 years earlier. But at its center, his top title, emperor, he's got this hilariously ramshackle domain in the Holy Roman Empire divided among 2,000 little noble demons all nipping at him for more control, more autonomy, more privileges. And into that mix, you have the absolute boy from episode one, Martin Luther, detonating the nuclear bomb of reformation into the heart of Charles's domain. If you remember from the last episode, Charles condemns Luther as an outlaw at the Diet of Worms in 1521, but lets him go, after which he is conveniently kidnapped into the protection of Frederick the Wise of Saxony. Luther and Protestantism then spread among the princes of Germany, becoming the ideological wedge through which they assert independence from Charles, the great defender of Catholicism. Matt, do you have any perspective on this from Charles's point of view? So Charles had, to put it mildly, a different relationship to the Catholic Church than Martin Luther did. Not only was he schooled from birth by high officials within the church, the concept of universal monarchy that swirled around him was meaningless without the complementary concept of a universal church. Luther's insistence on his individual prerogative to challenge centuries of church teachings made the prospect of continental harmony impossible. Charles's reply to Luther's heartfelt theological dissent at Worms was to proclaim that a single monk must err if his opinion is contrary to all that of Christendom. Who do you and think honestly, you are, dude? That, that's kind of a good argument. Yes. I mean, that's not a bad point, Charles. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but Charles was no, uh, no intellectual, but I, he, we'll get into this, but he, he's kind of a drip of a character, but I kind of l- like the element that comes through of him of just like exasperation of like, what am I supposed to do with this? He... He took from a young age seriously this mantle and obligation as like a thing to organize himself around, but he was just never that really into any of it. Yeah. That's kind of poignant. It is. It's like being one of the most powerful people in world history, but then just kind of going through it like it's a day job. Yeah. Just getting dragged around from siege to siege, getting bigger and bigger hemorrhoids. Yeah. And accomplishing absolutely nothing. And then you got this, this, 
world class thinker give, throwing all these arguments at you, and you're like, come on, dude, come dude, on, man. I got an empire to Why run. Don't we calm down a little bit. Yes. Like you're really you you know everything now. Yes. I mean that that honestly is a decent fucking rebuttal. <laughs> and Protestantism, one of the things we can blame it on is the creation of a way to say, actually, no, that's not true. Yes. <laughs> So, I mean, the Spanish blood in his veins came from a lineage of Catholic warriors who were, in his words, defenders at all times of the Catholic faith, its sacred ceremonies, decrees and ordinances, and his holy rites. While Charles was sensitive enough to the interests of princes like Frederick the Wise to resist the counsel of his advisors who told him to seize and burn Luther, Jan Hus style, he clamped down on the spread of Luther's heresy in any territory under his direct control. So all during this time that Charles is struggling against the Reformation in Germany, he's also fighting a protracted and bloody series of conflicts for control over Italy, uh, attempting to expand Habsburg imperial domination into the Italian peninsula. Where a ton of the money was. This is where the early trade networks of uh, of uh, medieval Europe were, were built, the early fortunes, mm-hmm. the early commercial fortunes right. uh, are, are built. And, and this conflict over those resources is part of why that center of gravity shifts northward to the Rhineland and to the Low Countries because it is essentially destroyed in this contest. This will become more important later, but uh, you know, one of the critical geographic formations here is known as the Habsburg Road. That's yeah. literally the, Royal, se- the Spanish Road. The yeah. Spanish Road is like a, a series of passes that basically directs money upwards from the Italian Peninsula up through the Alps and into the Low Countries, and of, also provides yeah. the key transportation infrastructure for sending troops mm-hmm. from Spanish. Uh, Spanish garrisons in Spain and in uh, and in it, northern Italy through uh, Switzerland and into the Low Countries. Right. So this this north south axis of power uh, that that's why the, that's critically important and why Charles is focused on it. Yeah. The Habsburgs' main rivals here are the uh, Valois kings of France, and the conflict between these two dynasties is going to be one of the main engines of European politics way into the next century. The Italian wars continue off and on for over 60 years and have an insane series of victories, defeats, alliances, and double crosses from all sides. Uh, The King of France gets captured in battle and held in Spain at one point. Uh, The Pope switched sides back and forth between the Habsburgs and the French at various points in order to check the ambitions of one or the other. Rome is sacked by a bunch of delinquent German mercenaries running out of control under Charles V. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the Ottomans under King Suleiman the Magnificent get involved and work with the French in one of the first crossover Christian-Muslim alliances in European history. Uh, legendary collab. Yeah, legendary collab. Valois ex Suleiman. <laughs> so uh, the reason that this is, becomes the terrain of conflict in this period is that the Italian city-states were the most economically, economically dynamic part of Europe. They were the key nodes in a rich east-west trading network that went from the Silk Road to the North Sea. Uh, And managing that created vast banking fortunes, complicated technological instruments of exchange, 
concepts like double entry bookkeeping and, which is i always and, see that brought up as like one of the technological innovations of the you Venetians. think how is it that hard to just think be that? like once one column says what you spend one column says what you get how like, the hell did, how did that, that take until like the how did it take you that long <laughs> again no need for it yes because you didn't have the intensity of economic activity right, that right, required right. the technological abstraction to think two columns exactly you didn't occur to you why would you do it if you didn't need to what kind of sicko <laughs> would do double entry bookkeeping if they didn't need it right and these would be crucial to creating the social organism that we're talking about of capitalism. Uh, but the thing that made them efficient was their small size, their small population that could be disproportionately urbanites mm-hmm. who could live off of uh, the fruits of these merchant endeavors uh, and sit around all day and do politics and do uh, diplomacy and, uh, also- and build abstract instruments of uh, capital accumulation. And didn't have to worry about the... Uh- deferring to some some hereditary dipshit king yep. and his even more dipshit kid who's got to have his own prerogatives and, and stuff like that. They you didn't just got get, your town council. They didn't have to kick up a bunch of money. Yeah. That, they didn't have to blow a bunch of cash on keeping up the, the livelihoods of a bunch of fancy lads right. whose consumption is otherwise the only engine of economic growth. Like mm-hmm. in the feudal era, you say like, well, where did the demand come from? The demand was entirely concentrated at the top, and it was in full. It was in luxury. Yes, spending all every all capital instead of reinvesting it, which is why you can still go to museums and see those gigantic tapestries or whatever, because that was what was getting made exactly. with anybody's money in Burgundy, which is which becomes the place that capitalism really flore- comes into fluorescence with the Dutch Republic. The the uh, Dukes of Burgundy had these pleasure gardens filled with mechanical devices mechanical musical uh fountains mm. that had little robot little mechanical scenes of like animals dancing around and shooting they had like squirt you know when you press the uh, the doorbell and you get a squirt of water like they had like prank squirt guns <laughs> made out of like tubing running through these things that that was what they spent money on that's what they spent all the money on these guys in these italian city states they're stacking Cash in their little competitive framework, their little these little micro states at the perfect level of efficiency. But all that wealth draws in these powers that are less efficient, more reliant on that extractive feudal relation, but as a result have this massive military capacity. So they come in and they're going to fight over these spoils. And in so doing, they're going to basically destroy the capacity of the Italian city-states to become the place where capitalism does establish itself as the hegemonic uh, social relationship that it will become. Uh, they lose it. and it, 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 the, the viral infection, if you will, travels north up the Rhine, right. eventually settling in the, the Dutch uh, lowlands and, we're not and gonna, in the southern England. And we're not going to be able to spend too much time talking about northern Italy, but uh, it's just basically one giant conflict until Napoleon comes in and cleans it, cleans it all up. Yeah. Uh, so... What we're going to see this this horrifying war is this awful, uh, bloody attempt to secure uh, this area, and uh, it's it's just this huge expulsion of blood and treasure, this massive uh, d- d- devastation of uh, the entire area that it never d- really recovers from. Right. Uh, During the course of his rule, Charles V fought in Germany, in Spain, in France, Hungary, and the Balkans, in North Africa. Uh, He he had forces in North and South America, but the place he fought longest and hardest was in Italy. The Italian wars in which Charles pressed Habsburg hereditary claims to territories in northern Italy and Naples against the French crown and occasionally the papacy 
were in act were the axis around which the entire Habsburg dynastic state turned. Silver extracted from the earth at gunpoint from the New World and by feudal right in Europe went to pay for a war that gripped Italy in 60 years of spasmodic violence. The French Valois monarchy, with its huge population and massive agricultural output, was the only dynasty that could stand toe-to-toe with the Habsburgs, with their own hereditary claims to the rich commercial hubs of northern Italy and the breadbasket of the south. In the words of Florentine lawyer Francesco Guicciardini, <laughs> Francesco Guicciardini, Guicciardini, the results were a flame, a pestilence which has entered Italy. By war's end, he observed they had overturned states and their forms of government, as well as their ways of making war. Both dynasties, allied to ever-shifting coalitions of Italian princes, including the Pope, paid for bigger and bigger mercenary armies to rampage across the peninsula. When the war began in the 1490s, a large army consisted of around 20,000 men. By the time it ended in the 1550s, that number was 40,000. The process of peasant dispossession and urbanization that defined the era ensured a ready supply of unattached young men willing to fight for pay and plunder. This massive concentration of resources into the military machine helped spark a revolution in military technology that made the business of war vastly more expensive and more destructive than had ever been the case in history. The armored, mounted aristocratic knights of the Middle Ages were replaced by hired commoners who made up for their lack of years of personalized military training with more potent weapons. Portable firearms, the arquebus, and the musket. The arquebus. The arquebus, one of the best-named weapons in history. And it's so funny to say. Arquebus. Arquebus. Oh, arquebusiers. Some guy rolling up to you with a slow match burning. (laughs) Portable firearms, the arquebus, and the musket, which were powerful enough to punch through plate armor, multiplied the lethality of the common soldier, along with the adaptation of the mass pike formation to neutralize the power of cavalry. Pike and shot, baby. Pike and shot. Yep. Artillery pieces became much bigger and more powerful, which necessitated the development of new fortification designs to withstand the heavier bombardment. One of the most noteworthy of these architectural innovations was the angled bastion, called the Tres Italian for its place of origin, (laughs) meant to deflect cannonballs rather than absorb them. The Star Fort. Yes, baby. The importance of protecting these fabulously expensive pieces of military equipment meant that sieges replaced pitched battles as the main points of contact in warfare. Paying for all this was a constant challenge. Even if the silver mines of Peru were sufficient to pay for it all, the means of distributing payment to troops in the field were too crude to facilitate it. Instead, Charles V borrowed heavily from banking families in the commercial capitals of the empire, such as the Fugger family of Augsburg, against the future output of royal mining operations and feudal tithes. In this way, the war stimulated the creation of even more complex financial instruments, but it still wasn't enough to keep the gears of war from stripping. The armies of the Italian war were often left without pay for months. It was one such unpaid army, nominally under the command of the Holy Roman Emperor, that sacked Rome in 1527 and whose German Protestant troops carved the name Martin Luther into the walls of the Vatican. Oh, man. This historic irony, yeah, man. It's it really delicious. Is. We didn't mention this in the Martin Luther episode, but Martin Luther took precisely one trip outside of uh, Germany. He went to Rome when he was before the Reformation, uh, when he was just a humble monk. He visited Rome and he did uh, he did uh, the penance on the uh, stairs. He did penance yeah. on the stairs. He prayed for his grandfather or something. Uh, and in later years, he said that he was traumatized by the decadence. But yes. we don't know if that was true at the time. Yeah, apparently, apparently he went there and was like this. Is what all yeah. the money's going towards right. these all these fancy lads these exactly the, these uh, royal papists. So we don't know. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, we had no idea how much he was thinking of it in those terms at the time, but I think it's suffice to say he probably didn't have a great time. <laughs> and then he fled back to Italy and Germany and, and stayed there never for left. a while. Yes, exactly. And then 20 or 30 years later, uh, there are a bunch of uh, uh, German mercenaries carving his name into the walls Unbelievable. there. Unbelievable. This churn of carnage, which could never be fully resolved as the two main combatants were too powerful to be entirely defeated by one another left deep scars across italy and the entire continent as veterans of the conflict returned to tell their countrymen of the grim impersonal unheroic face of modern warfare the heroic narrative of chivalric combat that had been crucial in affirming the legitimacy of the feudal system was drowned out in the crash of cannon fire the surgeon to the French forces besieged by the Habsburgs at the castle of Hadon in 1553 described the horror of an artillery bombardment thusly. Now, through the diabolical tempest of the echo from these thundering instruments, and by the great and vehement agitation of the collision of the air resounding and reverberating in the wounds of the hurt people, diverse died, and others because they could not rest by reason of the groans and cries that they made night and day and also for want of good nourishment and other good usage necessary for wounded people. In such conditions, the fantasies of virtuous warfare that had sustained the military aristocracy of high feudalism could not be sustained. The 1577 birthday festivities of Danish King Christian IV had no tournaments or jousts. No tournaments or jousts? Canceled. Had his birthday? Had his frickin' B-Day. According to theologian Erasmus Laetus, that was because chivalry was dead. And most things are decided through dissimulation and cunning. And when guns are appreciated above all other weapons, physical strength and military prowess have by nature lost all their former luster, since the bravest, strongest, and most forceful men are torn away from this wretched world in their early youth, if not childhood. Only few opportunities are provided to show bravery when weapons have become no more than a shortcut to crime. War no longer revealed virtue. It destroyed it. We we might get into this later that you know the 20th century the two two world wars are often thought of in some ways as a second 30 years Indeed, war yes and you know the, this crisis of the 20th century of the the death of any kind of heroism or virtue but again they're talking about this stuff in the 1400s it's, it's cycles like we're 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 seeing the emergence of a, of a conception of the self that is brought into critical continent wide crisis over and over again generally by changing material conditions right. The overall cultural effect of the Italian wars was to hasten the general sense of disillusionment with institutions mm. that marked this era of accelerating class and social conflict. Mm. The emperor claimed to be the protector of the one true Catholic Church, while his troops stabled horses in St. Peter's Basilica. The French king, who also claimed the mandate of Charlemagne, allied with the infidel Turk, who threatened to overwhelm the continent and snuff out Christianity entirely. Armies indifferent to leadership followed the path of plunder and bloodshed wherever it led. Surely, thought more and more people across every strata of European society, God had rendered his judgment on the earth, and his vengeance was nigh. The Italian wars definitely sound like their own version of hell on earth, but it is really, this is the dress rehearsal for, Indeed, the, yes. for the next century it, it of conflict. It builds the capacities that are unleashed continent-wide. Yeah, this is, this is really more than the birth of a new thing. It is the death of a former type yes. of war and, and capacity, and then the next version of it will be the even more destructive Yep. Uh, version of it and as in all cases it will be wielded by people who do not understand the destructive capacity of the thing that they are working with yes exactly
Back in Germany, Charles's focus on fighting the Valois in Italy gave the Luther-curious princes even more room to breathe. The rapid spread of Protestantism had given them another tool to check Habsburg power in renouncing papal authority, decoupling the Habsburgs' assumed role as defenders of Christendom from their temporal authority over the empire. Major figures like Philip I, the Landgrave of Hesse, or John Frederick, Elector Saxony, uh, John Sausage, of course. John, John, Johnny Sausages. Johnny Sausages. Johnny Sausage. Elector Saxony. Yes, Johnny Sausage. They pushed the Protestant cause into their regions. And, of course, there was another benefit to Protestantism. If you decide the Catholic Church has no temporal authority, hey, look at all these uh, ecclesiastical lands in your realm that just became ungoverned. Folks, it's free real estate. It's free real estate. It's free real estate. So the Reformation is accompanied by a mass confiscation of lands. And remember, we're still operating off a system where land equals power. So bogged down in Italy and dependent upon the consent of Lutheran princes to fund a war with the Ottomans in Hungary, Charles was unable to suppress heresy in the empire with force. Instead, he relied on the empire's legal structures to contain the damage. Catholic princes still held the majority within the estates. In 1529, an imperial diet reaffirmed the Edict of Worms, banning Luther and proclaimed a limitation on any further religious change. Fourteen Lutheran princes and cities issued an official protestation against the ruling. It was clear to these protestants. Do you get it? That's, uh, yeah, uh, this is what they were protesting. This is what they were protesting. Yes, that the emperor would not rest until the tide of religious dissent had been reversed. By 1531, these princes had came together to create a formal diplomatic and military alliance. The delightfully named Schmalkaldic League. Schmalkaldic League. The Schmalkaldic League, named after the Thuringian town of, wait for it, Schmalkalden. Isn't it wonderful? We love Germany, don't we? Folks? Yes. All these these goofy, goofy unions. The Schmalkaldic League was anchored by um, Philip and Elector John Frederick. The League collected members of lesser principalities and eventually another elector when Frederick III of the Palatinate joined. While Charles was occupied fighting in Italy, the Schmalkaldics got over a decade of relative freedom to pursue the Reformation, to pursue church confiscations, uh, of building alliances and armies, just just Protestant things. Just Protestant things. Protestant boys being boys. So after signing the Peace of Crepy with France in 1544, <laughs> that's right, it was a pretty crepy piece, uh, <laughs> Charles was able to finally turn his attention to defeating Protestantism in the empire once and for all. And he was able to do it with the help of an unlikely ally. Now, by this time, the Albertine Wetton branch. Remember, we we're talking about the Wettons. They There's got the Albertines. Out. There's the, the two Ernestines. parts of Sax- Saxony. Yes. So the Albertine Wetton branch controlled the Duchy of Saxons, the Saxony, the richer but uh, less electorally powerful one, uh, had all converted to Protestantism like the Wettons of electoral Saxony had. Uh, but Duke Maurice, cousin of Elector John Frederick, Johnny Sausage, and the son-in-law of Philip of Hesse refused to join the League. He was feuding bitterly with his cousin at the time over tax revenues of a county that they both jointly administer. Because the thing about feudal uh, rights is that they were bilateral and overlapping. Yeah. A single piece of property or a single, a single element of the system had multiple claims to it. Yes. It led to a lot of feuding and argument. The kind of thing that the emperor is supposed to adjudicate. Adjudicate, but, in but this has case, no authority to do has so. lost his ability and uh, legitimacy to do so. Mm. So since, uh, since Duke Maurice is feuding with John Frederick over these tax revenues, uh, he refuses to join the League. Charles replies by officially placing John Frederick under the imperial ban 
1546. And it points Maurice to enforce the ban. Yes. With the understanding that Maurice would claim John Frederick's title of elector as a reward. Now, after some wavering, Maurice eventually raises troops and along with the imperial army under Charles and his brother Ferdinand, destroys the army of the Schmalkaldic League and his cousin at the Battle of Mulberg. Both Philip the Hess and John Frederick of Saxony are taken prisoner. The Wittenberg printing press, which had been brought with the League army in the hopes of spreading the word of a Protestant victory, was confiscated. Notable reformers like Martin Bucher were forced to flee the empire for countries like England, taking the Reformation with them. Now, the most recalcitrant Protestants held out in the imperial city of Magdeburg, resisting an imperial siege for over a year. But elsewhere, Charles was finally free to impose a religious settlement. True to form, it wasn't a brutal reinstitution of Catholicism. Charles recognized that things had gone too far for that. Mm -hmm. His chief interest was in diffusing religious difference as a source of disunity within the empire. And again, it's more of this, like, Charles attitude of just like, come on, guys. stability. stop fighting. His eyes are on Italy. They've been in Italy Italy the whole time. This is just a, a brush fire that he would like to put out. The Augsburg Interim, proclaimed at the 1548 Diet of Augsburg, proved this by reimposing the sacraments, but allowing Protestant clergy to marry and lay people to receive both bread and wine and communion. Uh, It's the beginning of a process that Charles hoped would result in Protestantism being contained through special dispensation the same way Ultraquist Hussites had been a century earlier. We'll just make a new form of Catholicism that exists inside Germany and just we're all still the same guys. Exactly. Uh, Luther had died a year before imperial troops marched into Wittenberg, but his small bean heir apparent, Philip Melanchthon, who hated confrontation as much as Luther loved it, proved a reluctant but effective collaborator in the project of creating a digestible version of Protestant theology. But the contagion had by this point spread too far, and in the eyes of the princes, the work of politically neutralizing Protestantism was too enmeshed with the greater work of a Habsburg dynastic aggrandizement that could only come at their expense. Duke Maurice, seeing the failure of the interim to demobilize Protestant resistance and sick of getting called a traitor everywhere <laughs> he went, forged a military alliance with the King of France and launched a combined offensive against the Catholic forces of the empire that sent Charles fleeing Vienna just ahead of a conquering army. Duke Maurice, the guy loved a heel turn or a face turn, depending on your stance on <laughs> indulgences. But, you know, all this stuff, again, we have to get through a lot of like petty dynastic infighting and Absolutely. squabbling it's here. The sauce. Yes. But I, I think that's important to point here is seeing like even 30 years after, you know, Protestantism developed as a theological quibble, how like impossibly interlinked it is with like the political fortunes yep. of these, exactly. of these dynasties that it's basically within a half generation of its creation, a purely political like, like tool. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. All questions are dominated by expediency, Mm -hmm. especially religious ones. Which is, again, a funny pairing with uh, all these guys who are having nervous breakdowns about whether bread is God or not. Yep, because they don't have any real work to do. (laughs) Because they get to hang around in their fucking monasteries all day. Yes. They don't have any any real responsibility. They don't have Charles V's headache of governing this stupid empire. Exactly. But, of course, the empire being the empire, ungovernable as it is, Mm -hmm. even with this, the League, the Schmalkaldic League, is still unable to secure a complete victory. Uh, and the final outcome of all this bloodshed was 1555's 
piece of Augsburg. Augsburg. I feel like I'm just trying to highlight everything yep, that you're, that's going to show up on the AP Euro We should test. honestly put an air horn behind every one of these <laughs> things. Every edict, every piece. Yes, exactly. Every golden bull. And the piece of Augsburg acknowledged the fact of religious stalemate. Mm-hmm. It acknowledged the reality that nobody was going to impose themselves on this polity. As we said, can't mm-hmm. be done. The piece formally legalized Protestantism where it had already taken root. Protestantism defined, that is, by those who adhered to the Lutheran articles of faith known as the Confessions of, you guessed it, Augsburg. Augsburg. So you got a piece of Augsburg, Augsburg a confession, confession of Augsburg. Mm-hmm. There's some others. It's a very key. There's a comment at one point. <laughs> now that pointedly excluded adherence to the nascent Calvinist Reformed Church movement, mm-hmm. which will be a problem later on. Yes. But later on was later on. The agreement did the work of bringing peace to the empire and kicking the can of religious reckoning down the road for a generation, mm-hmm. which is all the institutions of the Holy Roman Empire were really capable of. Yes. Augsburg enshrined the principle of cuis regio, eus religio, I believe, meaning whose realm, their religion. You, got, the, you guys figure it out. Uh, this meant that the princes who had embraced Lutheranism by 1555 had the right to enforce it as the reigning faith of their lands. The same going for Catholic princes. People stuck living under an incompatible religious regime had the right of emigration. Both sides assented to the priests with the hope that God would, in the fullness of time, reveal his preference and reward his faith. <laughs> it's like, all right, so we're just leaving it up to the princes now, and just presumably in another hundred years or so, God's just going to kill. He's going to show up. He's going to pick us. We're going to go yeah. to the. We're going to go to Chuck E. Cheese. Defeated by the Schmalkaldics, the Peace of Augsburg, signed by his brother Ferdinand on his behalf, Charles was spent. And in 1556, he abdicated the imperial throne. His 37-year reign had been exhausting. At his abdication in Flanders, he recounted, I have been nine times to Germany, six times to Spain, and seven to Italy. I have come here to Flanders ten times, and have been four times to France, in war and in peace twice to England, and twice to Africa, without mentioning other lesser journeys. I've made eight voyages in the Mediterranean and three in the seas of Spain. It is wild to imagine that itinerary across 16th century mm. European roads, in all climates, on horseback, and often carried in a litter due to gout. But now, he was done. The last words of his speech, my life has been one long journey. What a long, strange trip sure it's, it's been. been. Yes. Uh, it's something unforgettable, but in the end, it's I hope you've right. had the time of your life, Chuck. Again, I, I, you know, I feel like we, I mentioned this above. I, I had a little trouble getting into the character of him, but I, I, at the end of this, I do kind of, I kind of feel for the guy. He, yeah. He's given an impossible task and impossible expectations. He does what he thinks is the honorable thing, which is he takes as read what his family expects from him and yes. just tries to carry it out. That but, is duty. Yes. It, it, of course, encompasses monstrosity beyond our understanding, particularly in the colonial endeavors in New America. That is true. But at the same time, you feel for his sense of just being trapped. Yes. Like, he basically exists just to just to keep saying yes to everyone around him. Yeah. Charles split his empire between his son and his brother. To his son, Philip, went the Spanish possessions. Spain. Philip Deuce. Philip the Deuce. Philip the Second. To his son Philip went the Spanish possessions. Spain, the Americas, Naples, Sicily, his conquests in Milan. To his brother Ferdinand went Austria, Bohemia, Hungary, and the other German possessions. 
Ultimately, Charles V Habsburg is about as close as Europe ever comes to a universal monarch. And he just couldn't do it. He couldn't get the job done. But given his personality and his historical moment, it's easy to see why Charles was, if nothing else, a faithful servant to God's demands. A-E-I-O-U. The rule of the world from his birthright in Austria in the name of the one true God. And as I was just saying, you put a guy like that in the driver's seat of the Habsburgs in 1519, and he's not just exercising imperial will or making a crass grab for dynastic power. He is doing what the Lord God commands of him. Indeed. The random churn of dynastic succession had thrown up Charles V into a position of unprecedented power. For the Habsburgs, this was the hand of God moving the pieces into place to finally bring peace to Christendom. To his enemies, it was the work of Satan. For Charles, it was mostly an often literal pain in the ass. <laughs> a mediocre ruler with a mediocre mind, Charles is no way matched the enormity of the position he found himself in. His grand strategy was a dulcetory game of continental whack-a-mole. <laughs> when dealing with restive vassals or foreign enemies, his first instinct was conciliation. He was willing to agree to anything that would buy him a moment's breathing space, space that never materialized as every other dynasty in Europe oriented their foreign policy around neutralizing Habsburg ambition. But even if Charles had been a world historical genius, it's unlikely he could have realized those ambitions. Europe and the German lands at its heart had resisted centralized authority since the fall of Rome. No regime possessed the resources or the technological application of resources necessary to impose its will across a geographic expanse dominated by small and medium-sized powers, all of them capable of defending their authority on a relatively equal material footing. All of Charles's expensive bloody machinations only served to set the stage for more catastrophic violence in the years to come, violence that would necessitate the emergence of a power finally capable of dominating the continent. So, Matt... Do you think that there is a strategy that Charles could have had to actually win here? If he had only focused on the Reformation, could he have crushed it? If he had only focused on Italy, could he have taken it? I would say that, uh, well, the thing is, he kind of did take Italy. I mean, we've talked about it as, we talked about the Italian wars as this like ceaseless Stale, stalemate, stalemate yeah. of, of this bloody changing of hands back and forth. Uh, but by at the end of the Italian wars, Spain held control of the the kingdom of the two sicilies right and the duchy of milan and genoa yeah so they had done well and had positioned themselves as the preeminent continental power right uh but they had not been able to turn that obviously into uh, a real unified kingdom a real actualized imperial project mm -hmm. and that's because they were breaking apart in the center and the pulling away of the Spanish Netherlands is probably even more important than the breaking away of the German princes. We'll get to that. So when we consider how central Luther is to this as an individual, and really like the number of options he had to try to nip this in the bud, I do think that if he had sort of called the bluff of the nascently Protestant princes, he could have maybe decapitated this thing. Because as we said in the previous episode, it was the urban populations that first and most assiduously adopted luther's critique mm -hmm. the princes even frederick the wise stood relatively aloof mm -hmm. it was only after the peasants war that they all decided that they need there was going to be some sort of reformation and they wanted it to be a on their terms a magisterial one yes so if at the diet of worms when you have this luther curious uh aristocracy mm -hmm. if he had essentially called their bluff and been like you do this and i'm going to fucking kill you and, and as part of that killed luther Mm -hmm. There's a good chance they could have stood down because they were definitely unnerved mm -hmm. 
by the way the Protestantism was spreading in the cities, right. who were their natural opponents for power within the empire. Yeah. So they were already nervous and skeptical of it. Yeah. That could have very well made them realize that the smart move was allying with the emperor. Yes. But uh, uh, at the end of, I hate to use a sports cliche, but at the end of the day, Charles fundamentally didn't have the confidence as somebody who had just been introduced into the into the imperial throne, right? Who had who had, had his grandfather just by the skin of his teeth and the grace of the Fugger family fund this massive bribe to get him into that position on a very narrow location. He had just had to put down a rebellion in Spain mm-hmm. when he was installed as king there, a noble rebellion, a noble rebellion who yeah. tried to impose uh, to tried to uh, support, I think, his cousin. Uh, he was on a very, very gingerly foundation to right. begin with, and just, I think, more than anything, did not feel that he could confidently assert his royal, his imperial prerogative. In the end of the day, he lacked the fundamentals. That's true. But yes, if he'd done that, maybe he's able to forge an actual machine that can, like, you know, turn turn conquests in Italy into enduring power bases. You know, I'm continually trying to highlight why we're trying to tell the story, but, you know, it's just very interesting when you have a hyper-strong centralized authority where all the actual instruments of administration are grinding to a halt around them, you know? I do think, though, that in that context where he nips Protestantism in the butt, it emerges maybe a generation later in uh, the Low Countries yes. or England. Yes. Or both at the same time, probably. Yeah. it's It seems like a force that is that is bound to happen at some right. point. But of course, if you have that kind of delay, that just changes things so drastically yeah. that you're in a completely different universe. Because, of course, well, uh, as, you know, as I highlighted earlier, the entire course of the development of the Reformation is completely wrapped up in the particular dynastic struggles of this very particular political institution of the Holy Roman Empire, yep. and it's impossible to see how it develops otherwise. Indeed. Anyway... Charles retired to the quiet monastery of Eusta in Estremadura in Spain, where he died shortly after in 1558. If you look up pictures of it, it uh, seems quite serene and idyllic. He spent his years there taking apart timepieces and then having his servants try to get them to tick in unison. Unsubtle to the end, but a peaceful death for a ruler who had spent a lifetime in armed conflict, whose reign was funded by the most brutal periods of conquest and domination of indigenous Americans. And of course, also, the slow death of the feudal system that had produced Charles as his consolidation of empire crashes up against the unconsolidatable German princes. The failure of Charles of Habsburg's bid for universal monarchy meant that all of the escalating conflicts between classes and religious groups that defined European life would continue undermining all institutional foundations and cultural cohesion without any presiding authority to channel or diffuse them. Instead, open warfare between and within polities increased as the radically destabilizing force of the Reformation brought confessional violence to every corner of Western Europe. And so next week, we'll turn to the other kingdoms of Europe to continue setting up the pieces for the big conflict of 1618. Because if there wouldn't be a universal monarch, there was bound to be universal conflict. Wonderful.
Hell on Earth is written by Matt Chrisman and Chris Wade. It's produced by me, Chris Wade, with editing from our co-producer, Nick Quaz. Show art and animation is from the great Ben Clarkson, and you can find a supplemental interactive atlas for the series by John White over at hellonearth.chapotraphouse.com. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds, with additional music by Alessandro Takeshi, John Ahrens, Tyrant King, and Stale Cooper. Join us next week as we catch up with the kings and major dynasties of Europe up to 1618 and put all the pieces in place for the outbreak of 30 years of apocalyptic war.